0: some of the most important tools to help us with difficult emotional and mental states that arise in life. And uh, I'm going to be going over, as usual, why these tools are so important, and then I'll leave you in a meditation to teach you how to uh, bring these tools into practice in your day-to-day life. So when we're... In our first three years of life, we operate and perceive the world in uh, brains and in uh, states of perception that are exceptionally different from the adult way of processing the world and perceiving the world. The child, up until around age three, is Dominantly using the right hemisphere, which is uh, the hemisphere that is generally has very little language uh, or logical sequential faculties in it. It doesn't have a time stamp in it. It's far, 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 the right hemisphere is far more embodied in that it has far more connections to the insula and to other ports that connect it with the body. The right hemisphere is the dominant um, hemisphere that takes care of how securely connected we are with people and the world around us. So it makes sense that that's the first uh, hemisphere that goes online. And the right hemisphere, because it's far more connected to the body, uses nonverbal somatic physiological uh, expressions to get its needs met. What we call emotions are essentially messages just as much as thoughts are messages. But um, emotions are messages that are expressed through two principal components. The first is physiological shifts and actions or gestures or impulses. And the second is the way emotions change attention, how we focus our attention. Children not only are using and connecting with other people and expressing their needs through the body, but when they have emotional states, their minds also have shifts in how they attend. Children are far more likely to be easily distracted. It's far more difficult for them to focus attention for sustained periods on singular aspects. They tend to have broader, more open, spacious awareness. The right cingulate, which guides how you focus your attention, is far, far more powerful than the left hemisphere that will develop in your adult life. So. Um, In general, all of our emotions are very important, and they carry really, really essential messages that um, don't go away if we ignore them. Sadness is the emotion that tells us that an attachment figure we've depended on is no longer available. Anger is the frustration that someone is interfering with our needs or our connections to other attachment figures. Joy is a celebration of connecting with a safe, secure attachment figure. Uh, frustration is when uh, attachment figures or needs that we had a reliable relationship with are no longer reliable. So every single emotion carries a very important message about our relationships with other people, and that's really what the right hemisphere of the brain cares the most about. The child cares most about maintaining a secure connection with its caretakers. And it signals all of its concerns and needs and desires through physical gestures, through cries, through facial expressions, through um, every single non-verbal tool available to it. So that's what we're doing up until age three and when we are in that right hemisphere in that uh very emotional body we experience the world as uh the body as a, a, like almost an oceanic force where powerful powerful impulses and physiological states and muscle contractions arise and pass because the right hemisphere is so much more connected with the body. It's so much more tightly aware of everything that is happening physiologically. Now, around age three, the child begins the um, migration from the right hemisphere to the left, which has been largely in the background for all this time. And eventually, by age five, the child starts to rely primarily on language as a way to connect rather than nonverbal gestures. So that's a really important migration. It takes about two years, uh, two years to three years. In that period, the child is offered a whole host of different tools to protect itself when its emotions aren't received well by its caretakers and other people. At first, when the child feels in the first three years of life, when we feel a strong emotion, the child's natural inclination is to run to its caretaker, to someone around it, to express that emotion, and then the parent sees that emotion and mirrors the emotion back. So the parent provides proximity, attunement, which means it looks the child in the eye, and mirrors, which means it reflects back the emotion to the child. When the child feels its emotions are mirrored back, it, through a process of what's known as limbic co-regulation and uh, co-resonance, the child begins to moderate its distress down towards the parent's level of confidence. All of this process of emotion regulation is non-verbal. And it will always be that way through our life. In our life, when we get emotionally activated, people will try to talk us down, we'll try to talk logic, say you shouldn't be frightened, scared, worried, anxious, depressed, and it generally, as you're probably aware, doesn't work, because human beings emotionally regulate only through resonantly connecting with other people in a non-verbal, emotionally based way. So... When the child doesn't get that kind of connection, it feels distressed and alarmed and abandoned, and it will uh, increasingly be prone to dissociation. Now, as it develops language and internal chatter, internal mental images, uh, inner world, as it's put, then the child is given an alternative to connecting with other people for emotion regulation. If the child feels anxious, scared, worried, angry, bored, lonely, whereas the child previously only had really one impetus, which was to connect at all costs to have those emotions regulated, eventually that child will be given an alternative choice, which is to seek shelter internally in its inner world fantasy, intellectualization, narrative, memory, uh, compensatory thought, all these different strategies to uh, seek shelter from their emotions will be present and available. Um, The inner life, our inner chatter and our inner images, our mental images and our inner chatter Eventually, as we move to left hemisphere as well, which has far fewer connections with the body. So as we move into our left hemisphere, we begin to really experience an inner world which can mute, literally quiet our emotional activations. Whereas for the first three lives, we felt our emotions as these overpowering waves of energies that felt like they would consume us. As we become four or five, we begin to experience suddenly an escape from our emotions, a way to essentially turn the volume knob down on our feelings, the felt uh, somatic, by going off into the world of inner representations. And it's about this age, uh, by no means coincidentally, that all of the immature defense mechanisms which our children rely on to... Repress emotions become available. Repressing emotions essentially boils down to deflecting attention, to focusing on internal content, to projecting feelings onto other people. All of that are skills that happen when we move into language. And also, the other thing about the left hemisphere is not only is it much more cut off from the body, but it has the ability to narrowly focus attention in a way that a child for the first three years cannot narrowly focus attention. Adults, when havoc is going on around them and they're roiled by emotions, adults have the uncanny capability to look at a little tiny screen <laughs> in the phone and then, uh, I don't like what's going on here, the world's falling apart, I'm just going to stay right here, thank you very much, and play my video game. And... I'll wait until all that shit goes away. <laughs> so they, uh, we develop this skill to narrowly focus attention and keep it sustained. The child's emotionally driven right hemispheric attention is far less focused and it's far more prone to jump around, look for any new stimuli. It generally doesn't focus narrowly. It takes in huge swaths of information. The whole phrase wide-eyed and bushy-tailed refers to the the fact that the early infant uh, attention is open and it's taking in the world and it's not fixated, whereas the adult is, where is that best? I'm going to tell him something. Get out of my way. What's going on? So we have this narrowly focused attention and that gives us the ability to repress our emotions even more. Not only do we naturally go into stories and thoughts and ideas, but we also use our narrowly fixated attention so that when we're lonely, we can turn on Netflix, or when we feel disempowered in our life, we can buy something that we don't need, or when we feel uh, sad, we can go on Facebook or, or go on Tinder, or Grinder, or anything you want to go on, you can go on and dis- displace, repress, deny, push down. So eventually what happens is we be- we develop this war with emotions. Now, if repression really worked well, it wouldn't be so much of an issue, but in fact, the, um, the circuits that govern uh, emotions tend to be very strong and very fast. They're always slipping through our attempts to repress our emotions. They're always seeping through. And so as a result, no matter how much we try, there's always this amount of somatic emotions that are making their way into awareness. And then there's the desperate attempt we have to push them down by thinking, distracting ourselves, getting lost in fantasies. Even, will very often become prone to worrying, and worrying is a form of distraction, believe it or not. People worry because they don't want to feel fear in the body, so they create catastrophizing worrying stories as a distraction from the feeling of fear in the body. So the adult landscape, the adult psychology, is a great inherent early fear of the felt body, which is essentially comprised of a great amount of strong impulses, which we all have this trace memory of when we were young. We felt our emotions, our loneliness, our sadness, our disappointments overwhelming. We felt our abandonments, and when people didn't take care of us, we felt it as life-threatening. And so those feelings were so strong and so powerful in the body that generally what we will do is try anything to keep the body down there. The left hemisphere generally experiences itself above the shoulders, behind the eyes, between the ears. So adult consciousness relates to the body as if it's this life support system down there. And yet, those feelings keep seeping up and it feels like, you know, this constant physiological waves forcing their way up. So... By the time we enter adult life, we really, 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 really struggle to separate felt emotions from the mental chatter and images we add on. We develop such a habit of when our emotions appear to seek safety and refuge and a sense of security and order and trying to figure out a way to deal, to get rid of our emotions we become so habitually uh, identified with and dependent upon thought that it becomes very, very, very challenging for us to simply feel our feelings and know what our feelings are. When people come to me, and my work is largely uh, Buddhist counseling, and when people come to me and I work with them, they'll come from generally some uh, very often, painful experiences in life, um, a, a family issue, a breakdown of a relationship, uh, all kinds of struggles with friends and roommates and uh, disappointments. And I'll ask them, how do you feel right now? And they won't be able to answer that question. What, they'll come up with an answer, but it's not an answer of a feeling. What they'll say is, Oh, I'm feeling that I'll never find a relationship that'll work for me. That is not a feeling. (laughs) That is not a feeling. A feeling is not a narrative with a story about the future. A feeling is I feel like my stomach is always tight, my throat is, I feel like I'm going to vomit, I feel like my shoulders are touching my ears, I feel like The micro-muscles around my eyes are narrowing and tightening. That's a feeling. A feeling is entirely physiological. It has no prediction about the past or future. It has no narrative to it. It doesn't know any other time other than now. It's entirely a set of muscular contractions or easements in the body. That is what a feeling is. Nothing else. A thought or mental content is a story. Nobody will ever love me. I'll never be able to find a good partner. I'll never have a good job. I'll, I'll never uh, wind up in a good apartment with safe roommates. I'll never find people that see my true inner value. Whatever. Those are thoughts. Now, the problem is, is that most of us, when we are emotionally in pain due to broken relational experiences due to disappointments in life what we try to do is we try to address the emotions by thinking thoughts. It doesn't work. We sit around with people who say you'll be okay you're, you're great there'll be other fish in the sea or you know your grandfather he got to live to you know great old life So we people try to address diminish, uh, regulate our emotions through language, through ideas. The only way we can regulate our emotions externally with people is simply when someone sits with us and creates a safe space where they don't in any way try to tell us why we shouldn't feel the way we feel, while they just listen and create a safe space where we can feel the sadness arise and pass. Emotions are messages. They carry information that they believe, the right hemisphere believes is vital to our survival. Any attempt to cut off emotions by repressing them leads to dysregulation and leads to uh, maladaptive coping strategies and eventually it leads to great forms of anxiety. Because anxiety is simply the attempt of the left hemisphere to block right hemispheric emotions from being expressed. So the more we cut off our emotions, the more we set ourselves up for anxiety in our life. Now, um, another way we can process emotions besides sitting with someone and just expressing them in a state of being non-verbally is we can create a safe container where we can allow the emotions to fully arise, be felt, and pass. The problem is, is that so long as we are largely language and internally fixated on our thoughts and feelings, all of our left hemispheric content tends to invariably get in the way of processing our emotions. So the key To do any internal emotion regulation, to process feelings, to work with feelings to understand the emotions we're in, requires that we be able to, for a while, put aside the tendency to think, figure out, solve, fix, adjust, and to be able to feel into the somatic expression of emotions, which is, again, the way the right hemisphere sends its messages to us. Any attempt to add an, a voiceover, a narration, uh, images on top, will generally diminish the ability to allow the emotion to fully arise, sustain, and pass. And that's the only thing that allows emotions to be processed. So, the key to... The Buddha's most important tool, which is known as mindfulness now, was originally known as sati, was a technique the Buddha developed, and it was, he was the one who developed this technique. It's the tool that, more than any other tool, separates Buddhism from every other spiritual practice. The Buddha, unlike the spiritual paths around him, which were always based on focusing attention on, um, either the breath or on metaphrases or on visualizations, the Buddha said that's fine to cultivate ease, but to cultivate emotional wisdom and insight and to have any chance to liberate ourselves, we have to be able to mindfully break down our experience into the basic components that are comprising it. What are those components we have to be able to break down our experience into? We have to be able to be aware of and connect with first the breath. How are we breathing? Two, how are the gut feelings in our body? And those in adults are entirely down the front of the body uh, nerve structure called the vagal vagus nerve. Almost all of your emotional signals sent by your right hemisphere as a way to express your emotional states, both to self and other, will be in the front of your body. Why? Well, it wouldn't make much sense for our backs to be the emotionally expressive parts of our body. That way, while we were expressing our emotions to our caretakers, we'd be looking away from them. So the vagal vagus nerve runs down the front. It it controls the, the facial expressions. That's the anterior vagal vagus, the posterior runs down the throat, the chest, and the belly. So that's where all, pretty much, the bow, and with the shoulders as well, of human emotions are signaled through that single highway of nerve structures. All the other nerve structures are far less involved in expressing emotions. So if you want to, the first foundation of mindfulness is just know how you're breathing in any situation the second foundation is then pay attention is my stomach tight is my chest hollow or contracted does my throat feel strangled do is my facial muscles what are they what kind of expression are they in is the forehead tight is the micro muscles around the eyes tight is the jaw locked or loose that's where all of the gut feelings that provide what's called intuition and gut feelings are found right down here, the front highway of the vagal vagus (coughs) nerve. The third foundation is to note whether your mind is open, spacious, and aware, whether your mind feels heavy and tired, or whether it feels overly energized and anxious. What quality of mind are you in? Again, emotions don't only signal entirely through the body, they also have qualities of attention to them as well. Known colloquially as moods. So, emotions are comprised of two things. Gut feelings, moods. That's what emotions are. Finally, the fourth foundation that we look at last is what kind of thoughts are present. What is my mind creating right now? What is the content that my mind... What are the interpretations that my mind is adding to any situation? Now, the normal order of adult life is that when we're in an emotional experience is to try to figure it out. So we immediately try to go into our thoughts and come up with a narrative or a plan. And we're trained to do this. When we're very young and we eat the cookie, the parent doesn't say... How were you breathing when you ate the cookie? It doesn't say, what were your gut feelings? your parents goes, what were you thinking? What were you thinking when you ate my cookie? What were you thinking when you ran down the hallway and scared your sister? What were you thinking when you pulled the cat's tail? What were you thinking? (laughs) Of course, We are trained, increasingly, as we go through institutions and schools, to be accountable based on our thoughts. The underlying message is that our thoughts must be what's causing all of our emotional states. (laughs) Guess what? That's not what's causing our emotional states at all. As you probably have noticed by now, you can have every intention to be confident in situations where you're... Reading a group of people or where you're making a presentation, and your emotional mind will have nothing to do with your plan. The right hemisphere only cares about, does the situation I'm in right now remind me of a time in the past where I felt threatened or where I felt empowered? If in the past you felt threatened, it will send up messages, emotions that say, hey, I don't like this. The last time I was in this situation, I was 30 years ago. The last time I was in a situation like this, it didn't turn out that well. And your emotions will become afraid, worried, concerned. If, if you're in a situation that reminds you of some situation in your past where things turned out well, then you'll feel confident, empowered. You'll feel willing to express yourselves. So... The right hemisphere, your emotional mind is not time stamped at all. It doesn't care whether an event happened 40 years ago or yesterday. If it's emotionally resonant and if you haven't shown it in any time subsequently that you're now safe in such situations, it will send up a negative emotion. For example, if in third grade you gave a class presentation where you drew something and you showed the drawing and other kids laughed at you, Then guess what? When you're 52 and you're asked to give a report in front of a group of people and you show something that you created, guess what you'll feel? Anxious, nervous, worried, you'll have panic. Because your right hemisphere doesn't give a shit, frankly, that the original event happened 50 years previously. Joseph Ledoux, I love this example, the great neuroscientist says, The example of a couple breaking up at a restaurant over a checkered tablecloth and over the checkered while they're breaking up they're both staring down at this checkered tablecloth so they associate checkered fabric with relational ends and disappointment so he says his example says 15 years later it's entirely possible that the guy or the girl in that relationship, or two women, whatever, the two guys, one person in the relationship will meet somebody wearing a checkered tie and will instantly dislike them. Because they've neurally associated checkered fabrics with relational breakups and with lack of safety. So that's the way the emotional mind works. The fact that sometimes the emotions can be triggered by old false associations, doesn't mean anything. We have to process the emotions if we want to let go of old fears. There's no way that repressing fears will ever be able to allow us to grow. The way that we address old legacy fears, like when I was a kid I had a fear of water. Even when I would get into three feet pool of water, I would get I would have panic attacks until I did the very calm exposure way, is to step-by-step lead myself into the ability to go into the water. And the way I did that is what mindfulness allows. Mindfulness is the fundamental key to virtually all forms of contemporary exposure therapies. What we do is we stop listening to our thoughts, we stop paying attention to the inner images, and we focus first on the breath, and then I would step into the water and just breathe and relax my breath. Then I'd find the gut feelings. I'd find my tight belly, and my tight chest. I'd relax the belly, relax the chest, soften the shoulders. Then I would keep my mind open and spacious, and I'd each time inch it a little bit further. And a good friend of mine who's uh, a clinician, a mindfulness clinician, works with vets, who have PTSD. And these people were incapable of being outside because they had been traumatized by sudden loud sounds and people shouting. So whenever they would go outside, the first time a truck backfired or a sudden sound or a construction uh, thing would drop, they would go into a full derealized dissociative state of terror. They would start hyperventilating, freaking out, ducking, for cover, uh, they would literally be in a derealized state where they were back in a war zone. And yet, with the simple tool of just detaching them from the inner chatter, which was creating and activating a lot of the, was creating a great part of the dissociative episode, and just focusing on the breath, he could take them outside and he could say, okay, I want you to focus on your breath, extend your breath, be with your breath and then I want you to focus on the feelings of your body and just stay with those. And trucks could be backfiring, people shouting, but so long as they focus just on this little element of experience, they can survive and actually learn to essentially deprogram themselves. When we allow thoughts and feelings to be entangled, they tend to amplify each other. They tend to make panic attacks almost impossible to deal with because you have the heaving hyperventilation, the tightness (coughs) in the stomach and the chest. You have then the thoughts, I'm going to die, I'm going to fall apart. You have the the, uh, projecting catastrophizing images. The only way we can deactivate and process emotions is by first always learning to break them down into their core components and always start with the components we're least aware of, the breath, the body, mood, and then finally, finally thought. So the practice is to essentially uh, invert the way we generally live our adult lives. Because most of us, when we're in overwhelmingly painful, difficult situations, our tendency is to immediately try to work it out. When we're in big arguments with loved ones, we try to figure out the next thing to say. When we feel criticized at work, we try to figure out how to defend ourselves. It's hardly in our programming to take a break, to pay attention to the breath, to relax it, to then find the gut feelings in the body, note them, note the emotion that's being conveyed, wait until it passes, note when the mood finally opens up and becomes less jumpy, and then finally ask ourselves, okay, what other ways can I have right now to approach this situation? Most of us will never be able to have free will unless we learn how to self soothe The thing that takes us out of free will is the fast, impulsive circuits of fight, flight, or freeze. And oddly enough, fight, flight, or freeze tends to become more pervasive the more we tend to distract ourselves from the felt body than if we actually pay attention to the felt body. The more we develop continuity of mindfulness, the more we can catch emotions, anger, fear earlier, and process it so that we can stay engaged in a useful way. So I'm now going to teach you how to do this practice so that you can do it anytime you want in any situation in your life. Okay? So find a really comfortable sit. Uh, say it. Say it. So the best way to find a good sit is to uh, and if there's somebody all the way in the back, you can always there's a bunch of room in the front by the sides, so you can come up, yeah. If you want. There's lots of just there's, there's stuff right over here, so you can right over here you'll see like even bolsters or blankets. There we go. You can sit against the wall. So, when you're ready, close your eyes and then first let's just tilt the body forward and back and from the left to the right and then around and then see what feels like a good center. Don't visualize yourself Generally, like you're coming, you top spinning to stop, just allow your body to stop at what feels like the most comfortable upright position, and then feeling into your head. See if it feels like your head is in nice alignment with your hips, and try to keep your head from slouching over your chest. But in general, the most important Consideration is to make sure that you feel comfortable. So allow your comfort to be first and foremost. And we'll do a few uh, breath practices. So um, take a full in-breath through the nose and lift up your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears if you like and then hold them up there, and then breathe out, and drop the shoulders as far as they can, and breathe out, yes, through the mouth, and then the second in-breath, holding in the belly as taut as you can, really tighten it like you're flattening the belly, holding it taut, 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 and then release. And then a really soft belly without any tension in it, and then finally, Breathing in and squinching the muscles in the face, making a really ugly, tight, pinched face. And then breathe out. Relax the muscles around the eyes, the forehead. Relax the jaw. And now let's take a quick survey of the body and see if you can just make sure that you're... Addressing any issues of tightness, any clothes that feel too tight, anything about your legs or anything about your posture, make sure you feel comfortable and start to cultivate a mind that really, really cares about your ease. Setting an intention as well to have absolutely no judgment or criticism of yourself to be as patient as you can. There's no role for self-judgment, self-criticism, or impatience in your practice. So for the first Period of this meditation, we're going to try to return awareness from its perch up above the shoulders into a greater connection with the body, which will be necessary for the practices we'll be doing. So, find a set of sensations you'd like to keep in awareness, the easiest being find the sensations that are clearly articulating your in-breath and your out-breath. How do you know from your body? When you're breathing in or breathing out, from the actual expansions and contractions. So, don't visualize your body. If you do have an image of your body and yourself, just leave it in the background of your mind. Don't push it away. But just focus on the felt sensations of either the chest, or the tip of the nose, or the abdomen, or whatever area of the body expands and. With the breath. If you don't like working with the breath, no worries, you can simply pay attention to contact sensations such as hearing the sounds. Noting the lights between closed eyelids, and especially feeling the weight of the body pulling you down, the contact with the cushion, and the contact with clothing. Or another approach would be to feel in to different parts of the body, known as a body scan. So, first start with your feet, feeling in to the sensations of the left foot. And then feeling into the right foot, noting the field of sensations, and then what sensations let you know you have a left kneecap? How are those sensations? How are the sensations of a right kneecap? And so forth. Feeling in, noting, reconnecting with the sensations of the body. So I'm going to leave you with this practice in silence for a little while. The most important goal is to lower awareness into the felt physiological body sensations. Almost as if, if there's any images in the mind, they now seem like they're floating above you. If your mind does get baited by a thought, just when you wake up and you realize you've been disconnected from body sensations, just drop whatever has pulled you away without any frustration or self-judgment at all, just feel grateful for developing awareness and then note what kind of thought pulled you away, return to the body and reward yourself with a nice, full, relaxing breath, Relaxing the shoulders, once again creating physiological ease. ease. So for the second part of the meditation, where we'll actually be doing the mindfulness practice, otherwise known as Insai. Just note the feeling right now of the breath and note how the sensations of the front of the body, Is your stomach tight or relaxed? Does your chest feel open or constricted? Do your shoulders feel taut or released? What are the jaw and muscles that create expressions in the face? And finally, notice if your mind feels tired or anxious or settled aware or distracted. And so those are the first three foundations we'll be working with in this practice. I'd like you to think of some topic or issue in your life that has been repeatedly coming up again and again in your mind. The same thought or issue it could be a resentment with someone a big decision that can't be made like leaving a job or staying or something that causes a lot of concern or repetitive avoidance something that is causing some ongoing flare up of mental content and what that means is that there's unacknowledged emotions that haven't been processed that's why the thoughts keep coming up they're repressing or attempting to distract from the emotional activation so what we're going to be doing is we're going to pay attention and regulate or process at least the emotions purely in and of themselves so bring to mind an issue that's been Coming up, and then hold the most resonant image in your mind. So if it's a fight with somebody, hold their face in your mind. If it's an issue about a job, hold the image of quitting the job. If it's an image, if it's involving a roommate or a family member, visualize them or a situation that's very, very resonant. A situation where this topic or concern comes up. It's important that you don't turn this into a story. That's exactly what we don't want to do. We just want you to use this image as an emotional, emotion generation image. And then we're going to also use in your chatter to generate the emotion. So while you're holding this image, ask yourself, how does it feel? For instance, how does it feel to be Mistreated, to be abandoned, to be not heard, to be not cared about, to be left, to be unseen, to not know what to do, to be scared. How does it feel? Try to be as Resonant with the question as you can, but again, don't turn it into a story. Just ask, how does it feel? Now, hopefully, with the combination of the image and the questions, you'll begin to feel some small, subtle expression of the underlying emotion. It could be a tightness in the belly. It could be a change in your breath. It could be a subtle shift in body posture or mood. Your assignment is to find the physiological non-verbal expression of the emotion and just create a safe space to feel your feelings without getting rid, without cutting off, without repressing, without abandoning your emotional mind. Your emotional mind is every bit as important and valid as your logical mind. If nothing comes up, keep asking different questions, or holding a different image, or if you feel blocked, try an even more resonant experience. Try to bring up in the body, in the breath, the emotional expression Just let it be safe, don't push it away, don't get rid of it. So finally before we begin the transition, if the feeling is still present, change from any questions to just ending with sending this emotion that's been activated a sense of welcome, very gentle, simple phrases it's okay, I care about you, I care about my sadness, I care about my anger, my fear, my loss, my disappointment, my overwhelm, my struggles, I care about my needs. Any very simple heartfelt phrases that could send a message, from your mind to your heart, or from your mind to your body saying, it's okay, I won't abandon you again. I won't overlook you again. I won't push you away. I'll take care of you. When we can feel and create safety for emotional expressions, and we can integrate our emotions into our lives and make choices that make us feel safer. We can make decisions that used to plummet us because we can integrate the intuition with the rational rather than simply try to figure out emotional issues by reason alone. It's so important to be able to connect with, hear, and provide an audience for our felt life. So when we now get to the point where we're going to open our eyes, when you do first look at the ground in front of you, don't look around the room, this richness of visual stimuli will push your body into the background. So, first look at the ground and just take in the light and color of the floor, the wood, and then integrate sight into an awareness that's also aware of the breath and feelings in your body, and just see if you can keep that balance going where you know how you feel. And when you're ready, you can look around. So, to... Conclude It's best if we can have a practice regularly throughout the day where, before every meeting or before every new room or change, or uh, before every we go to every meal and come back, where we check in just with the breath and the body and develop a practice of connecting with a felt experience. When you do that, you'll catch emotions arising and they won't flood you that way. You won't become surprised or you won't also be less prone to repressing them if you can connect with them earlier. The earlier you can find the emotional body, the more you can be with Know what is being felt. Know the messages that your emotion, your unconscious right hemisphere is sending you, and integrate it into your uh, decision making. And if you do have uh, experiences where you find the same topic continually spiraling, again and again, coming up, again and again, the same thought, the same argument, the same back and forth, the same choice you're trying to make in your mind, that simply means that you haven't integrated. And process the emotions involved. So this is the way we do that.